Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Let's jump into where we're going. We're going to spend our time in Judges chapters 6 and 7 this morning. So, got your Bible, get it out, make your way over there. We're going we're gonna to have to move to get through these two chapters, okay? Um, so the first half of the sermon, we're going to walk through it. I'm going to show you what's going on, tell you the story as we walk through it. And then I'm going to come back around in the second half of the, um, of the sermon and kind of tell you what we should be pulling out of it, all right? Um, listen, there's just going to be some, I'm going to give you kind of a heads up. There are going to be some great just truths that we see, like these nuggets of truth that I'm like, man, I wish we could spend more time in as we go through the story on the front half. And we're just going to kind of lightly tap on them. No way we'll get everything that we, um, that we should or could out of it. So this would be a great week if you're like, uh, I don't normally read my Bible. I'm kind of new to this whole thing. Just the scripture that we're covering this morning. You could spend your whole week in Judges 6 through 8, and it would be really profitable for you. So um, I would just encourage you towards that. But let's jump in Judges chapter 6. I want you to kind of make your way towards verse 11, and I'm going to set you up with the first 10. Um, It starts, the opening verse starts with, now Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you've been with us for a bit, you've seen that happen before, right? There's this cycle of sin that Israel keeps falling into. This is the image that we've used to kind of walk through that and depict what happens. The first thing Israel does is they forget God. They have spiritual amnesia. They forget everything that he's done for them. And the only thing left for them is a bunch of rules that they're supposed to follow, but they don't know the God who gave them these rules. And so they're like, I don't see any reason to follow those. I don't see any evidence of God in my life. They forget God, which always leads them. And it happens again here in these first 10 verses, they start worshiping foreign idols. Because people are made to worship. If you don't worship God, you're going to worship something. And so they start worshiping these foreign idols. And so what happens, that's their disobedience. Disobedience takes different forms. We always see in Israel, down at the core, they're worshiping something other than God. That disobedience leads to their disaster. Every time. Happens in our lives too. Then we run from God. Ultimately, we think we're running towards something that's going to satisfy us, be good for us, and it leads to our disaster in some way or another. That's what we see with Israel. They become enslaved to a nation called Midian, and they're enslaved for seven years. Now, after seven years being oppressed and enslaved by them, they cry out. That's that spot of helplessness on the cycle. They realize that they can't save themselves from the mess that they've gotten themselves into, and so they cry out to God. Now, every other time, the first four judges that we've read about, what happens is God sends a deliverer. This time, though, before he sends a deliverer, God sends them a prophet, and this prophet comes And he says, hey, guys, this mess that you are in again, again, this mess, this is not the product of someone else's doing. This is the product, the making of your own decisions that you've been making time and again to run from the Lord. So what happens, y'all, is Israel wants another miraculous deliverer like they've had before. And God pauses and says, no, I'm not going to give you miraculous deliverance first. I'm going to give you a sermon. Now, 
I want you to, to grab hold of that. It's not a pleasant one either, but listen, God's activity is often memorable and incredible, but listen, it is his word that gives life. And so often, y'all, we want miraculous deliverance from the circumstances that are weighing us down, that we feel like are oppressing us, and yet we forget to go to the source of life that he has offered for us, and that's his word. That's just a little, again, I wish I could spend more time there. That's a nugget, all right? Um, Listen, after this, our main character arrives on the scene, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak. That was an Ophrah, not Oprah, all right? Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, this guy, the Abizarite. I struggled with that one this week, but Joash is what you need to know. Um, His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Now, a little heads up, Gideon doesn't know he's speaking to an angel, all right? That'll be made clear verse like 19 and 20. So he's thinking he's speaking to some guy and that's evidenced by the way he responds right here in verse 13. Gideon says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, tell me if this rings familiar to your life ever, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, hadn't the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. You catching what's happening This person says to Gideon, the Lord is with you. And Gideon's almost, he's almost offended by it. Why? Because he's grown up in some harsh circumstances. Israel has not just been oppressed by a foreign nation. They've been run out by Midian. They're hiding out in the mountains. They're being exploited economically. That's why he's hiding his threshing of the wheat in a wine press is because he doesn't want the Midianites to find out about it. Because if they do, they'll just come and take it. Because that's what they've been doing time after time. Life is hard. It's unfair, and this guy has the nerve to say to me, the Lord is with us? If the Lord's with us, why has all this happened? Where is the God who parted the Red Sea? I don't see him anywhere. Y'all, this is perhaps the number one reason people walk away from God. It's because we see our troubles, our present circumstances, as evidence that God has left us. Anybody, if you're honest, willing to admit, you ever been there? Things got pretty rough, and you start thinking, I wonder if God is really even here. Y'all, this is is why I love the Bible, because it's so real about the human experience. You know, I said, there's only some things we can tap into today. This is one of those. But listen, this is something we say often around here. The Christian understanding of God's love towards us and his presence with us is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that Christ got up on the cross for you. And if he didn't abandon you on the cross, which was his darkest hour, if he didn't abandon you there, he most certainly will not abandon you in your darkest hour. His love for you is fierce. It's fierce. Like a father's love for his child. He loves you. And if you're a Christian, he is present with you. He promises that. He can't go back on that promise. That's against his character. If you're not a Christian, you came here this morning, he may have you right here right now. So you can finally hear once and for all definitively, your circumstances are not the measuring stick of God's love for you. They're not. All right, we got we to gotta keep going. Verse 14. So the Lord, which, oh, this is so fascinating, that now this angel is called the Lord. We get into a whole theology lesson there. But God is very present even in this moment. He turned to him and said, 
Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I'm sending you. He said to him, please, Lord, this is Gideon talking. How can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the youngest in my father's family. This is one of those great alarm bell moments in the Bible because Gideon's calling by God now has a familiar pattern of how God calls certain people to certain tasks throughout the pages of scripture. God says, here's what it always happens. God says, okay, go do something impossible. And the individual says, that's impossible, right? That's what happens. How can I do that? In fact, I'm the least qualified of all. And does God respond and say, oh no, Gideon, no, I see great potential in you. Not at all. Look at verse 16. The only thing he says in response to Gideon's, you know, I don't know if I can do that. I will be with you, the Lord said to him. And so then, that's the only, only because I'm with you, you'll strike down Midian as if you were one man. Noah, go build an ark. I will be with you so you can trust me. Abraham, go up on the mountain and sacrifice your son. I will provide. Trust me. Moses, go to the most powerful nation on earth and emancipate two million people. And Moses says, uh, God, who am I to do that? And God says, you're nobody. When you get there, tell them I am has sent you. You go in my power. Trust me. Go Ehud. Go Barak. Go David. Go Solomon. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, go tell them the good news. I will be with you. So you can trust me. That promise that he'll be with us. And that calling to go, that's ours today, church. Y'all listen, Christians, I don't know what background you have in church, whatever. Christians are sinners, okay? We are, y'all a whole bunch of messed up people in this room that have gathered this morning, and you got a messed up person talking to you, all right? Our only qualification for being able to complete the calling God has for us is the promise that he's with us. That's all we need. Let me say it this way. The calling of God always comes with the presence of God. Always. The calling of God always comes with the presence of God. Let's keep going. We're going to skip down to verse 25. On that very night, the Lord said to Gideon, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old, then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father. Cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on the top of this mound. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. This is 27. Gideon took 10 of his male servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. Y'all, Gideon's own family, great example of what's happening across Israel right now. The Israelites, watch this, they had not entirely abandoned the worship of God for idols. They had combined the worship of God with idols. They retained some kind of formal ritualistic worship of God, like going to the temple on the weekend, but their lives revolved around the worship of these agricultural idols that they hoped would give them what they really needed because it didn't seem like this God that they heard about in fairy tales is the way they thought about it was actually there ever showing up. So they went out on their own and said, I need something that will actually provide for me because I don't think that God's going to. The evidence that this community valued these gods so much comes in verse 30 when they discover what Gideon did. 
they go, the men of the community go to his dad. Here's what they say. They said to Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he tore down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Listen, one way to get to know what your idol is is to see how distraught you are at the idea of losing it. So Gideon's dad looks at these upset guys. This moment of just beautiful father protecting a son, maybe coming to some clarity on his own. We don't get that in the text, but you, you see something there. He goes, Gideon's dad looks at him and goes, listen, why, why do you need to argue on Baal's behalf? If Baal really is a god, let him deal with Gideon. And the members of the community are like, hey, that's a good point. We're just going to let Baal deal with him. And then nothing happens. Nothing. Why? Because Baal wasn't real. And so Gideon, right at that moment, the way chapter 6, the way it goes right there, is Gideon gets renamed Jerubal, which means let him contend with Baal. Maybe a modern translation would be his name is what, Baal? You know, it's like, what you got? Nothing. You got nothing. It's mocking. His new name is mocking this false god. Listen, we're going to come back. But God's making a point to show Gideon how powerless false gods are because he's about to send him into a foreign enemy that's powered by false gods. But before God uses Gideon to bring deliverance to others, he's got to do some work in Gideon's own home. And he's got to do some work in Gideon's own heart and mind. Because listen, God doesn't work through you without working in you. That is how he works, y'all. In fact, God's not even done working on Gideon. The end of the chapter of chapter 6, it appears to be Gideon testing God. Verse 36, Gideon says to God, if you'll deliver Israel by my hand, as you said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by my strength, as you said. And that's what happened. So when he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. Gideon's actually going to do this one more time, going to reverse the thing. He's going to say, hey, if the, dew, if the fleece is dry but the ground is wet, then I'll know. So what are we to make of this? Is this an example we're supposed to follow? Like, God, if you want me to take this job, I, let them call me in the next three hours. Is that what we're supposed to do? I mean, you'll hear people say in Christian circles, I'm laying out a fleece about this. Now, I want to be gracious here. But listen, when Satan asks Jesus to test God in Matthew 4, Jesus rebukes him very sharply. So what are we supposed to think about this? Is Gideon right or wrong to test God? Well, the author doesn't really tell us, does he? So we've got to be really careful to say, be like Gideon right here, when I don't think that's what we're going to say in the end. Here's what we do know, that Gideon is new to this God that he's heard about from his forefathers being personal and active in his life. That's new to him. He doesn't have Jesus or the Bible to tell him about God's faithfulness to his word. He's asking for a supernatural revelation to see that God is who he says he is. So what you have here in this moment, look at this. You have shaky faith. He wants to believe that God will do what he's saying, but he needs to be sure that this God is actually powerful enough because he's about to put his life on the line. Now listen, we on this side of the cross can't use this as a license to ask for some little sign. God has created a different way for us to verify his power and his faithfulness. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit, but I think what I want you to see here is just how gracious God is to Gideon. If anything, what you see is another example of the pattern that you see throughout Scripture, and that God, it's that God is patient with shaky faith. 
which is why the New Testament was going to hold up Gideon in Hebrews 11, and it's going to say, by faith, Gideon did all these amazing things. And you and I can say, well, it, it wasn't perfect faith. It was shaky faith. But at the end of the day, listen, Gideon still obeyed the Lord, and the Lord took shaky faith and obedience and worked mightily through it. So should we do what Gideon did with the fleece? No. And I'll tell you more about that here in just a bit. We've got to keep going. Verse 2 of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is going to be the battle, all right? So all of chapter 6, getting Gideon ready. Now we're going into battle. Chapter 7, verse 2. And verse 2 is the key verse of this chapter. The Lord said to Gideon, <laughs> you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them. You got too many. Now, he's outnumbered. We're going to see this. 33,000 to 135,000. He's outnumbered. And the Lord said, you got too many troops. Or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength saved me. So announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So watch this, 22,000 of the troops turned back. Woo, only 10,000 left. And then God says, you know what? Still too many troops. So through this rather odd exercise down by a river, God whittles the number of men in the army down to 300 men. It's the ones who, uh, it says, the ones who lapped up the water like a dog, send all those away. The one who scooped the water up, keep those. There's 300 left, okay? These 300 men... That's who God's going to put up against 135,000 Midianites. I need to make sure you grab the distinctions between the, 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 just the size difference in these armies, all right? So let me show you. Got a little depiction show. It's football season. So this is a really big stadium. You could say it's like a big house even, okay? Um, and this is Michigan Stadium. It seats 113,000 people, right? So imagine that completely full plus thousands in the parking lot and everywhere else, okay? That's the Midianite army. Now, let me show you what Gideon is left with. That's Gideon's crew, okay? That's who he's working with against this drastically outnumbered. I mean, you see the distinction there. And listen, these are not, by the way, it's not like God whittled it down to the best 300. This is not Gerard Butler's 300, okay? You know, y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, this is not 300 Dwayne The Rock Johnsons, or if you're back a generation, maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger, or like Rocky Sylvester Stallone, not Expendables, Rockies, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is not like these really super fit, awesome guys. That wouldn't make sense because then Israel would be able to still say, maybe they stood in their own strength because they had just the best 300, right? No, if God really wants to show that it's only about him, that means you got more like 300 like Jack Blacks, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that, are, that are going to war against these guys, right? It's just a very, very different thing. And look, what, what's happening there? Even actually, the Lord right here, after he whittles this army down, then he does another thing where he offers Gideon a proof that he can trust God to provide. And then Gideon, after that last one, he looks at his men in the middle of the night. Verse 15, look what he says. He says, get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. So he's recognizing the Lord is the one who's doing this. Now Gideon's got this courage within him. He divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a trumpet in one hand, and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other hand. This is their weapons of war. And then he said, watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I, when I and everyone with me blow our trumpets, you are also to blow your trumpets all around the camp. Then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. The idea is these 300 men, all in the middle of the night, all with their trumpets and torches, 
surrounding trumpets and torches, new band name, I call it. All with the, the all like surrounding, they're out there in the middle of the night. They're, it's during a shift change for the Midianite army that's watching, like on, on watch, you know what I mean? So they're out there. Well, the Midianite army, uh, officers who are coming off, the soldiers who are coming off watch, they're walking back to their tents. And at the same time, these other guys that are sleeping hear trumpets sounding. They rush out of their tents and they see this like surrounding, all these torches surrounding. And then they see these dark shadowy figures coming back into the tents. These are the guys that are coming off shift and all chaos breaks out. Brilliant military strategy, you could say. And then look at verse 22. Gideon's men blew their 300 trumpets. The Lord caused the men, because the Lord is doing everything in the story. And the author wants to make sure we never start to think that somebody else does. The Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. Now, what follows, again, is worth reading in detail. Gideon's army never even draws their swords. They just watch. And 120,000 Midianites destroy themselves. So Gideon chases the remaining 15,000 until he captures the two kings and he kills them. Y'all, Gideon stepped out in shaky faith and the Lord held to his promise and gave Gideon the victory and set Israel free. This is the fourth judge we've looked at over the past three weeks. Each one is called to a task way beyond their ability. Right? Each one is also flawed in some way. You got Ehud, who was flawed physically, the left-handed man, most likely because of the, the physical disabilities that he had on his right hand. You got Deborah, who's flawed socially, being a woman, being asked to lead in an era where women were never allowed to do that. You've got Gideon, who was flawed spiritually, very shaky faith that he's standing on. Yet each one, at the end of the day, put their yes on the table, and God used their obedience to bring about his plan. Y'all, that is, I hope you see a pattern forming about how God wants to use us in our world today. So here's what I want to spend the rest of our, of our time doing. I want to talk about what we need to know about God's calling on our lives today. We see Gideon's calling here. We see him wrestle through that, especially in chapter six. So I want to walk back through, comb back through these two chapters. And we're actually going to hit on chapter eight as well a little bit. And I want to show you what we need to know about God's calling on our lives. And here's the first one. God works through the weak and willing. That's the first thing I need you to grab hold of. God works today, in our day, through the weak and willing. Two different times God approaches Gideon. Two different times Gideon makes excuses for why he's not gonna step out and trust God first. He just doesn't believe God's there. And then he hides behind the excuse of being unqualified. He is economically and socially the poorest member of the weakest clan of a non-prominent tribe of Israel. I mean, how can God use him for anything? And when Gideon says these things, he's forgotten something. God's work is always and only accomplished by his power. God doesn't care about potential. Listen, God, is, God says that Gideon's going to be a mighty warrior. Why? Only because God called him a mighty warrior. Gideon has no power. God's word spoken over Gideon, that's what has power. That same word that spoke creation into existence. That's what has power, not Gideon. Listen, one of the most dangerous threats to your faith is responding to one of God's commands with, I can't do that. When you read the word of the Lord and it says, forgive others as you have been forgiven, and you think, no way, it's too hard. If you knew what I had been through, you'd know that's too hard for me to do. You know what he did to me, what she did to me? Listen, 
You're right. That is too hard for you. You are still standing in your own power. They don't deserve your forgiveness, nor do you deserve the forgiveness God gave you. Listen, you are a bitter, hurt person on your own, but in Christ, you're no longer alone, ever. And his power is available to you. His spirit is with you. And when you cling to his love, what you are doing is you are clinging to the source of your own forgiveness. That sets off a chain reaction of forgiveness in your own heart. You see, scripture says when the Lord saves you from sin and death, he recreates you. And that's a part of that is his presence abiding with you, recreating you. When God says something like, I'm calling you to tell others about the love I have for them, you think, no way. Too scary, stakes too high. I I don't know how I could do that. I'd mess it up. You're right. You, on your own, are definitely gonna mess it up. But you're not alone is what God's telling you. Look what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. The apostle Paul, who's like the greatest evangelist ever, all right, here's what he says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. How? How do we have the power to be ambassadors for Christ? Since God is making his appeal, God's the one doing it, making his appeal through us. God works through weak, willing people. You are not too young. You are not too old. You are not too poor. You are not too weak. You are not too simple-minded to be used by God for his glory today. There's a guy named Hudson Taylor. He's the guy who's credited largely with kind of forging the missionary frontier um, in China. Here's what he said about this. He said, listen, all God's giants, they've been weak people, weak men and women who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Listen, most Christians, statistics will tell you, have never shared their faith with someone else, like why they believe that Christ died and rose again and that that's for their sins. They can have new life. They, They don't share that. But God calls us to in scripture. That's pretty clear. Why? It's because we feel afraid. What I'm telling you is the same thing an old missionary once told me. The antidote to that fear, it's not like courage and bravery. It's trust. It's trusting that God is with you. And when you have complete and total trust in that, then the fear subsides. So listen, here's a prayer I started praying this week. Um, Pretty simple, but it just kind of, as I was reflecting on this and trying to think, how can I apply this to my, my life and to the relationships that I'm in and to the things God has called me to do? And I, I would challenge you to pray, maybe start praying this. Listen, it's this simple. I am weak. God is strong. I am willing. God is able. So let's go. That simple. I'm, I, I know I'm weak. But, but I'm gonna try and be willing, Lord. And I know you are both strong and able. I know you're with me, so let's go. I'm convinced that an awakening might rise up out of a few hundred people praying that prayer together. Listen, here's the next thing I want you to see about your calling. God doesn't work through you without working in you. That's chapter six, verses 25 to 30. Before Gideon sent to lead off that great, uh, lead that great battle, God calls he and his squad to go to war against the idols in his own home. Before they can throw off the enemies around them, they got to throw off the enemies among them. And now listen, remember what we said earlier, they didn't worship these idols instead of God. It was in addition to God. You may not have statues, but that doesn't mean you don't worship something. There's a very personal reality to this. Think about this for Gideon. God is saying to take the thing that's been a sacred part of your daily life. I mean, this is 
something your dad seemed to have fashioned and put as a centerpiece of your home. And he's saying, destroy it. Why? Because it was competing with me for your worship. That's always how renewal starts in our lives, guys. God doesn't help us out of our obvious, like uh, maybe the more visual problems, you know, things like uh, money problems or relationship problems. He doesn't help us out of those until we see the idols that we are worshiping right there beside the Lord. We got to get rid of those first. So let me ask you, what is competing with God right now for your worship? And if that question's too abstract, here's a way to figure that out. The way to answer that is to answer, what would give you anxiety if you had to live without it? College students, let's be real right now. Just do you spend more time, literal seconds in a day, more time scrolling through Instagram, seeing the false narratives that people are putting out there for you about the way their lives are, or do you spend more literal seconds of the day alone with God in personal worship? Where is your time, where are your eyes going? Because your heart's gonna follow that. Listen, I'm serious. Your idol may not be a golden calf, but it might be a glowing screen. And it might require, you want God to change your life. You want God to work through you. You wanna grow as a follower of Christ if you are one. But are you willing to shut down anything that's competing with him? Listen, God's got a purpose for your life. And it is a better purpose than you can craft on your own. It is gonna give you more peace in your soul. It is gonna give you more joy. It is going to impact many more people for God's glory than you could ever do all on your own. But it will require him working in you before he works through you. That's the hard thing. Listen, let me talk to some of you in ministry leadership. Maybe it's here in a ministry team, community group. Maybe you're leading a Bible study somewhere. Maybe you wanna be in ministry leadership one day. You do not want to be the kind of leader that tells others about a God that you don't know. That's what the Pharisees were. They are never given in the Bible as examples to follow. I promise you it's worth it. It's what happened to Gideon. It's what we see happen throughout Scripture with all great leaders. It might be painful to go to war against your own idols before you go to war with some others on those other ones, but it's worth it. Let me go to the next one. Next thing you got to understand about our calling, specifically around that thing with the fleece, what I want you to get is that the cross is our fleece. We go back there to that fleece. Gideon is asking God to prove that he was with him by making the fleece wet and the ground dry. He does it a second time, and this gets abused. You know, the church thinks I can do, uh, people in the church, Christians will think, I can do some random litmus test that'll prove whether or not God wants me to do something right? So it'll look like this. You and a group of your buddies, you'll go out to the basketball court and you'll be like, all right, if when I shoot this, the ball goes in, that means that I'm supposed to ask this girl out. But if I miss it, then I'm not supposed to, right? But we all know what you're actually doing. We can judge what's going on in your heart by how far away from the basket you are when you take a shot, right? (laughs) So you go into doing a layup and then you miss it. You're like, no, best out of three, right? Because you really just want to ask the girl out. Right, and you want to try and pawn that off on God told me to. But then maybe you got yourself in some situation and you're trying to hide, you're being a coward and hiding behind some spiritual thing. You're taking a half-court shot with your eyes closed, right? Well, no, Lord didn't want me to, right? That's what, listen, that's what can often happen with this fleece thing. I'm not saying searching for a sign is always bad. I'm saying if you're going to search, make that only a part 
of the process and make the Bible and your Christian community a much bigger part of the process. In fact, you kind of see Gideon, he knows this isn't great theology that he's doing with testing God like this in verse 39, because he starts the second time around of asking God, he goes, "Uh, don't be angry with me, but could you do this again? Listen, the main point here, Gideon's not looking to verify if God wanted him to do this or not. He's trying to verify if God is with him and if this God really has the power to carry this whole thing through. The man is scared. He doesn't know this God that well. We have something much better than the fleece. We got the cross and we have the empty tomb. And that's why Hebrews 1 says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways, like through a fleece. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, how does his son speak to us in our fear of trusting God? Well, on the cross, God shows he was fully in control. He took mankind's worst act, crucifying the son of God, and he used it to bring about our redemption. And in the resurrection, we see that this God has the power to defeat death. He's the only guy that ever got up out of the grave and is still alive today. This is a God powerful enough to trust. In the cross, Jesus revealed his love in a word to be perfect. So Paul comes along in Galatians 3.27 and says, Christians are clothed with Christ. His love is wrapped around us, get this, like a fleece. It's perfect in power. He created and he still sustains the universe. It's perfect in application. God points that love right at you. Each one of us, knowing your full story, It says, I love you, and I want you. That's the love of God for you. If you have that love, what is there to fear? What other assurances do you really need? Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So whom should I fear? Not only that, he is the stronghold of my life. He holds me up. So whom should I dread? Do you know this great love for you. Not have you been around church a lot in your life. Not have you gone through the motions of religion. Have you encountered this God who loves you that deeply and who is that powerful and that intent on holding on to you? Do you know him? You can, that love is available for you today. Today. Let's keep going. I got two more things I want you to see about your calling. The next one is that God's miraculous provision is best seen from the front lines. As we're going into chapter seven, which is just a fun chapter, right? Wild deliverance in a very unexpected way that is done that way so that only God can get the glory. God did, think about it, he did all this work, all of chapter six, just to get Gideon ready and finally get him there to battle. And then he didn't even use him. The guy never even pulls out a sword. But Gideon did get out there. He got out there on the front lines And that's where he got to see 120,000 soldiers get confused by 300 torches and trumpets. Gideon had to trust God enough to step out there and to lead others to come along with him. You want to see God work, you're going to have to step out in faith at some point. Often, listen, it's common for me to hear people say, well, listen, if God will send the money, then that'll prove that he wants me to go on this short-term mission trip, so I'll wait on that. Or if I'm supposed to go on this church planting team somewhere, then I'll stay here and I'll wait to see if God provides a job. And if God provides a job, that'll be my answer to know that then I'm supposed to go and do that. 
Listen, that's not how God works. God provides, often through your obedience, that scary space between obedience to what God's called you to and then the provision of what you hope to see happen by stepping out. That scary space in between, that's faith. And that's where the Lord does his greatest work in our lives. So if God's calling you to go on a mission trip, to speak up about something, to forgive someone, to help someone in need, don't wait on God's provision to determine your obedience. Obey him and watch him provide through that. Here's the last one, and probably the most important one. God, not his provisions, not his blessings, God must remain our first love. There's this little moment in, um, in Gideon's story that I, I just kind of glossed over. You may have missed it, where Gideon says in the battle cry, I want you to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, Gideon, why are you doing that? Why are you trying to saddle up alongside and get credit along with, along with God? Maybe we could write that off as some kind of cultural sort of battle ritual, but the reality is chapter 8 very clearly reveals Gideon has got his head just set down a dark path. He gets crowned the leader of this victorious new nation. They ask him to be king. Listen to this. Gideon says, no, 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 I'm not supposed to be your king. That's what, that's what God is. God is your king. You think, oh, maybe Gideon's got it. And then he says, but give me a lot of gold. He asks for wealth. He asks for the things that a king should have. Listen, he, what he does on top of that is he takes some of that gold and he starts to create this thing called an ephod. It's something that uh, was normally reserved for the place where God was worshiped. And he creates a new one. And he creates it and he puts it in his own hometown so that he can continue to have influence over all of Israel. And the result is Judges 8.27. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping that thing that Gideon created there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Y'all, under the guise of spiritual humility, no, 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 I'm not the king, that's for God. Under the guise of being one of God's people, he tried to make himself wealthy and powerful and used it for his own gain. And it became his own downfall and it took all of Israel with him. And what we're gonna see next week is that Israel is worse off than they ever were before Gideon got there. Even, think about this, even Gideon drifted away from the Lord. Isn't that crazy? The story ends with a really sober warning. Your complacency with God's blessings can lead you away from God himself and his calling on your life. There's this um, spot in Revelation chapter two where the author's talking about the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church. And he says, y'all have done such great things for the Lord. Wow, look at all the ministry work that you've done, but this I have against you. You have forgotten your first love. And that's the one thing that God asks of you. So hold on to your first love. You've done a lot of things for God, but you don't really know him. Maybe that's where you sit this morning. I want to close giving you just a chance to reflect and respond to this God. So if you would, bow your head and, and close your eyes. Let me walk you through a brief way to respond to the Lord.
if you are a Christian, maybe you just, it's, God has put something on your heart or in your mind, the way you're supposed to be responding to him. And you just need to say to him today, Lord, I am weak, but I am willing. And you need to lean back into the love of God for you. God is with you and his power is going before you. You need to rest in that today, Christian. God, I am weak, but you are strong. I am willing, you are able. So let's go. If you're not a Christian in here, I want you to hear clearly that God has brought you here today, I believe without a shadow of a doubt, to hear that his love for you is not and never has been based on your circumstances. His love for you was shown on the cross where he took the payment that your sin deserves. Listen, God loves you. He wants you. But you have chosen to run from him. And the payment for running from him is death. But in his great love for you, his son paid the price. He died in your place. And now you can have new life. You can be free. New life, free from your sin. And you can walk with God, your father, as you were always created to. You don't have to earn that. Just receive it. With a posture of open hands and an open heart, you say to God, God, I, I believe. It may be it's shaky faith. That's okay right now. Maybe it's shaky faith, but God, I believe that you, you died for me. I'm giving you my life. Receiving that forgiveness. Thank you, God, for saving me. Father, would we be a people in awe of you and your love towards us. Thank you, Father, for saving us. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace on us. We don't deserve it, but we worship you for it. We praise you in Christ's holy name.